deal with with it when someone we love dies young how to understand it in a way that really helps <coughs> death is a is a sub, is remember most of us now most all of us are not dead yet <laughs> Most of us, right? no. so that that we don't know uh, what what it is in terms of experience. We can't remember. I don't you know. Maybe some people can remember the previous life death, but I can't. But so death of the body is something that is in the future, and so we contemplate that. Death is what we don't know. Don't know. Uh, That the the word death itself is, is, I mean, as a, when you contemplate it, is don't know. I mean, you might, you might have theories or beliefs about it, you know, that, about reincarnation or or um, going to heaven or hell or oblivion, you might, you know, <laughs> once you're dead, you're dead, there's nothing, or you go to hell, or you go to paradise, you go to heaven, you get reborn, you're reincarnated as a, as a fish or a alligator, or, or maybe uh, there's uh, certain groups that, that believe that we can never go backward. We can never be reborn as a lower form. So we we maybe get reborn as a human being or as a devada. But tell us right now, I don't know. <laughs> as a as an experience now, because this is life. This is living bodies alive. Consciousness is like this. The body, a living body, is like this, and so we, we, uh, we, we acknowledge, we, we notice the way it is, and that in terms of the death of somebody else, is that now we perceive that person is dead rather than alive. So the perception that means we don't know if they're alive. And they say they're sick, or they're happy, or they're depressed, or they're insane, or they're uh, young or old, or whatever. We can kind of understand all of that <coughs> because we experience all those states. But death is we d- we don't know. So, those when some when you you hear somebody's alive, that's one. You know something in you can relate to life because you're experiencing it. And then uh, when somebody's dead, then it's a different feeling. You don't know. So there's a gap. What, what I might describe is like a gap or a space. When somebody dies, it leaves like a gap in the mind, a space. Death is what we don't know. And so when somebody dies young, 
it's usually like death of an old person is more in, seems natural in you know when you get old you die and so there's a there's a kind of resignation to that and and uh, more accept sometimes that's easy to accept the death of an old person but especially somebody young we find that you know because we still perceive youth as as living and not as dead and there's a kind of maybe a, an emotional uh, feeling of whatever you're feeling you know notice that the confusion around it or the grief or the indignation or whatever whatever at this moment you happen to the 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 feel the emotion that you you have but this is a reflection on death as we can from the position of the here and now in terms of our own experience so it helps and say how to understand it is uh, in a way that it really helps this this to me helps you know a way of, of accepting it because what can we do about it? Just the way it is. If we hate it, resent it, then we, you know, just create suffering for us around something that is, is perfectly natural. That when you're born, then you can die at any time after you're born. You know, you can, as soon as you're born, you can, the body can die. So, I mean, death is, isn't a matter of living to... 95 and then dying but it, it can happen at any moment physical death and so that that um, and but when when young when people when young people die there's a, a kind of sadness to that because we we um, we'd like to think of the young you know growing up and getting old and 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 uh, the, the living their lives fully rather than dying young but also people die young there's, there's these beautiful poems by this uh, Gitanjali this uh, Indian girl that died when she was only 14 years old of cancer it's called Songs of Gitanjali and uh, she she kept a a diary, or wrote a lot of poetry. She's a very good poet in English, and uh, she you know, lived in India, and um, she uh, hid these poems. Nobody knew, uh, I mean, they, her mother found them after she died, and she kind of tucked them away in secret corners of a room on the, in the mattress or whatever, and finally, the mother finally found these poems, and they've been published in a book. Quite moving, but this young girl, Indian girl, is uh, talks about death in a very mature way. It's amazing. This, this, you know, she's only about thirteen years old or so. She's she, uh, and, and because obviously that maybe, I mean, she doesn't isn't like she's there's a. Uh, Somehow you feel it's a kind of sadness that she dies young, but you also feel that she seemed to understand everything quite well. Maybe it was not necessary to live any longer. 
I don't know, I'm speculating, but according to the poems, she seemed to be someone that that uh, it wasn't a tragedy in the sense of she died in a state of unfulfilled uh, youth uh, and uh, completely bewildered and depressed and and miserable by the fact that she was dying, but uh, it seemed to be, you know, she seemed to be very, very wise and about what was happening to her, because it was a, took several years for her to die, and the, the kind of degeneration, and then the, the, the concern she had about how her mother felt, or her father. And a lot of, a lot of the poems about the, the, the sadness she felt when her father came into the room, not because he was so upset by what was happening to her. That kind of thing. It's quite mature. <laughs> when you're the one who's dying, you so we don't know, you know, whether, you know, there's physical age the determination. Some people are quite wise when they're very young. Some people are still very foolish when they're 95. Mm. So then is it, is it, uh, is it the quality of life or the length of life that's important? You know, this is where, you know, to me, it's more important. I'd rather live a short life with, uh, in a wise way than a long one in a stupid way. <laughs> but this not knowing, I mean, this is very, you know, death, the end, the future, the darkness, the unconditioned, all these things point to not knowing, but not to, but not to a, a stupidity, but a realization. It's not, like, it's not knowing as an act of stupidity, but it's not knowing as a realization. There's a difference, isn't there? This not knowing is, isn't uh, anything to, I mean, it's a, when you realize that, then you find peace with it. It takes you to peace and emptiness and silence and rather than to, you know, a black hole of misery or, I mean, we create the misery around the, the fact that we don't know or we're, we're frightened by the, the fact that death, uh, uh, because we don't understand death, it, we merely get frightened by it or we just react uh, in emotional ways to to, or we just feel totally confused or upset when somebody dies young because it's not fair and, and it's, we think it's abnormal or it's not right. Or uh, we fin- think of it as depressing or bad or whatever. But, but when we really look at it in terms of experience, what, it, what is the result? There's a difference, isn't it? Like, like I noticed when, with Ajahn Chah, uh, when he, he was ill for 10 years, seriously ill for 10 years before he died, where he was incapacitated and couldn't speak and had to be taken care of. Um, 
uh, I mean, he couldn't move and they had to feed him and do everything for him for 10 years. But he was alive. His body was breathing. He was conscious. So you, in uh, people, you know, every people, because he couldn't talk or he didn't, and sometimes he seemed to, you know, he, people didn't oftentimes assume that he didn't know what was going on. They, they, they thought maybe he was like a vegetable, but he wasn't. He wasn't. He was. He was aware, and he could. And he, when he was interested, he would. You know, he's obviously very much aware of, of what you would. When I would go and visit him, until the, uh, the last time I saw him, he was unconscious. But before that, he was always very aware of me, and I would talk to him and tell him what was happening here in England and what was happening with the monks and so forth and. And he would, you know, there was a, you know, he could look at me with his eyes, and there was certainly, you know, uh, he wasn't a, a cabbage or anything. Certainly with me. And there was, through the eyes, you could tell him. That sometimes, I think, if he didn't, he just didn't want to be bothered, he would just close his eyes. Mm. But then he was still alive, his body was still alive and that, but when, and then when he died, and we knew he, and we thought he could die any time, you know, during those 10 years. So sometimes they'd phone me, when, the, when, the, when it was a crisis, they, they'd phone me from Thailand and they'd say, Ajahn Chah is in the emergency unit in the hospital, uh, we think he's going to die. And, and at first, you know, I'd get, uh, oh, I've got to, I'd almost, you know, get on the first flight out of Heathrow, off to Bangkok. And then he pulled through, and uh, so that this was the idea that he, he was going to die. And, and we were all prepared, you know, intellectually. Uh, we knew that he was going to die, and he could die at any time. So intellectually up here, you knew that. And, it was, and, and that wasn't a shock. But the, how, it, how, it, how you felt emotionally was a different way. And then, when he, when he did die, then the perception of Ajahn Chah is dead. And and then Ajahn Chah is dead. Is uh, you know the the I felt this 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 grief, a grief, a sense of grief. Emotional. It was emotional. It wasn't intellectual. Now it's quite intellectual. I was prepared for it. It wasn't a surprise, or you know. But it. But you. Ca- but I couldn't feel the that kind of grief till actually, you you know, the words came. Ajahn Chah is dead. Even if Ajahn Chah is in the ICU. Or it's a critical thing, but but then the, the the word death is a very powerful word. And or when I went to see Master Hua, I'd contemplate Master Hua is dead, and I'd feel this grief, this sense of, it's a loss, a loss, um, an emotional feeling of loss. Is how I describe it. And death. And just even if somebody told me Ajahn Chah was dead and he wasn't, I'd still feel it. You can feel it in a in a in a cinema. 
when you absorb into a into the movies and somebody dies, you you feel their grief. Don't you? I do. <laughs> Even though it's you know it's a a movie, shadows on the screen. Uh, and you know, you know, it's an, an actors, um, you know, playing roles. But, but that that particular that's a, an emotion that we have is is uh, is is grief, which doesn't mean it's even happened. You know that I mean the actors are you know you know they're not dead, but it's the it's that whole uh, kind of set of. Uh, of that we have. I mean, I'm just observing this. I'm not, uh, from from my own experience, how it works. Or if somebody's dead, but you or you think they're still alive, you don't feel grief. Mm. So, just the word death, it can, can uh, what brings uh, brings that up sometimes or. Or a cat, your 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 cat dies, or the goldfish. And just to contemplate, you know, as you watch your 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 heart, the, your heart, like here, bring attention more to this part of your body. You know, like you can use the body as a as a as an object. So, like. When we're talking about watching the heart, actually, we you know bring your attention actually to this part, so you can kind of where you feel, or in the solar plexus, in this the trunk here, is where you you feel your emotions, so that you can you you use it as a as a as an anchor, just to kind of get in touch with feeling and the uh, and the emotional world that. That you can dismiss just through through uh, the intellect. If you if you if you know you just endlessly think about it and and uh, and and rationalize it out is one way. But uh, then the emotional reaction can be you can go you can not notice it. I was telling one of the monks was today about the the when uh, Ajahn Bapakaro disrobed. When some of you knew Ajahn Bapakaro, and he disrobed about five years ago, I think. And he and I had been monks together for twenty years or so in Thailand, been through all kinds of things, and and uh, and it was a good thing he was disrobing. I mean, I, intellectually, I was I was all for it. He was making a mess of monastic life, and uh, and he obviously, uh, you know, had reached the limits of it. And it was apparent that this was a good move to disrobe. So, so it was up here. It was you know, I was all for it intellectually. And then the then the day came for him to disrobe. And I remember, uh, you know, as all, uh, that night when I went to bed, I said, "Tomorrow he's going to disrobe. That's quite acceptable. No, no particular emotion arose." And then the morning, I woke up, and then the thought came to me: Ajahn Babaka is going to disrobe. And then, 
this incredible grief came over me. I sat there in my bed, and the tears pouring down. And I don't know why, because intellectually I think he's going to disrobe, that's fine, you know, fine with me, good idea. And yet, on the, on, on the heart level, there was grief. You know, it was very strange for me, because, because uh, I, I mean, you know, you give so much emphasis to your rational mind. And uh, and you believe it is the, is the you know the you you believe in it so much and give it uh, give it a priority. But yet on the you know even though it was all rationally acceptable and a good thing emotionally, there the disrobing is like a law, like a death for a monk. So because in the monastic life there's a great kind of bond that uh, that uh, that. Uh, that you have with other monks, especially if you've been with each other for a long time. Sometimes you don't realize it till they disrobe. So then, I'm the one that had to disrobe Ajahn Prabhakra. This thing's like, I can't do it. I'm going I'm to ask Ajahn Sajito to do it. <laughs> any, any monk can disrobe another monk. I don't have to do it. It's going to back out. But I knew that, that you know, I, I was I was chicken. Didn't want to have to face it, so so instead I, but I couldn't I couldn't get up and go out. Uh, and so somebody came to see me, and I said, "Would you tell um, Ajahn Babakro that I can't disrobe him yet? But wait till tomorrow." And uh, so the next day. And, the, and that day I felt a lot of grief, but the next day I, it was kind of finished. And he came, and I disrobed him, and so forth. But that, the, that, that day there was a genuine emotional grief that wasn't sentimentally, it wasn't a sentiment of the mind, you know, like watching a, a movie where you're, you're getting caught up in an illusion, but it was a, it was a, a human experience of grief, of loss of a of a brother monk, and then after that, then it was all right. You know, grief is something you get over. It's not like you know, I, I was. It wasn't depressing, or it wasn't shattering, or disturbing. But it was. It was something you know that that you have as a human being. It's a natural feeling. <coughs> Not to mention when it's, you know, like your mother or father or somebody, you know, you have very strong uh, connections to through ancestry and a very, you know, who brought you up and so forth. But they also, it's interesting in Sangha how that happens. There's a... But it is the ending of something, like disrobing is, is like the ending of it. Uh, the, the relationship changes. And, uh, and, and the, 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 the Sangha is a quite a powerful experience. Uh, as a, you know, that sometimes you don't realize while you're in it how, how what, what, you know, the, the, strong, the strength of it. And then when somebody leaves, Leaves it, then you 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 have a this 
this, this experience of grief. But, but how many of you, you know, and sometimes we, in the society we, we feel we don't, you know, we can dismiss it. You know, we've, grief is something that can be just ignored. And then it seems to, you know, you know, then it, it's something, you know, it's held in the body in some way, or some way it affects life, so that people get depressed or men especially, I think, you know, get depressed as they get older because probably a whole, you know, unrecognized grief experience has never been resolved. Because there's a lot of grief, which you may not notice. Just like your cat dying. Intellectually, you say it's only a cat. But yet, you know, there, there's, there's the end of, of something you, you might have loved very much and strong connection to, or disappointments in life. And we all have our disappointments, disillusionments with things. And, and these are not processed, then they still, you know, if you, don't, if you don't resolve them, then they, as life goes, as you live your life, then they tend to, uh, uh, you know, it seems to have a, a cumulative effect that that maybe bring us a nervous breakdown or a something, you know, in, in the midlife or even when we're young, people have breakdowns because maybe of unresolved emotions. And because the society we live in tends to be so, so, you know, is full of ideas and, and you know, th- and, and a kind of dismissal of emotional experience as if it were you know, something that you don't want to be bothered with. But yet, when we look at life, it's, a, it's an emotional experience. It's all sensitivity. Always feeling all the time. Just look when you, you know, when somebody, you know, you can feel it inside here. When somebody looks at you in a certain way, that looks angry at you, you can, they can look angry at you. Maybe they're not even angry at you, but they look angry and you pick it up. You can feel it here, right in your body. What's that about? Is that because you're neurotic and super sensitive, oversensitive and delicate? Or is that just the way it is? Life is, you know, in this realm is a sense realm. And so we, we feel, and, and that feeling is uh, sometimes very, uh, can be, we cut ourselves off with, by by, say, thinking too much. As I say, when you think too much, get caught in ideas, then you, the sensitivity is, is, is cut. You, you aren't aware of the sensitive experience of, of consciousness. You're working always from, from uh, things, uh, ideas that, uh, that cannot, ideas can never, are not sensitive conditions, are they? Think of it, have an idea and see if it's sensitive. It's, it's, it's not, and so if you just think, 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 then you, you know, you, you can uh, and, and get caught in ideas alone, and views and opinions and, and that. Then it doesn't mean you're not sensitive, but you're not, 
you're out of touch with it. You, you can suppress or ignore it, much of it, till it kind of explodes out on you when, it, when you've had enough. Or this is say like the in childhood, just the the traumas of childhood, the feeling of being rejected by the group, or the having to the first going to school, and all the traumas of having to to go to school and leave your leave your mother as she takes you to school, and you have to go into this strange place, and all these other little boys start picking on you. And your mother goes away. I mean, you can think, well, you know, that's everybody, everybody has, to, but still, there's, these are, you know, over a lifetime can be accumulated, accumulated grief experiences that, that say, in meditation, sometimes we're now being able to, you know, they come up, or they, or we suddenly feel maybe uh, emotions that we, we don't understand because they aren't related to anything we're thinking in the moment. And then we might think, you know, that it's, we're going crazy or whatever. <laughs> but but it, 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 you're not. It, it's to see it in the right way. And that's also like a purification, a resolution of karma. That uh, that is necessary for spiritual development and and just health, good health, and and a, and a, and a happy life in, in the worldly sense. Then this other question. Let's see. Could you say something about the nature of dunha desire? Explain how it differs from other kinds of desire. Raga, which is desiring things you like. Dosa, desiring to be rid of things you don't like. And Lopa, covetousness, greed. And can you explain why the Buddha said and was said was dhanha and not these other kinds of desire that is the cause of suffering. So, I mean, these are Dunha is a kind of generic term, so it it just points to the to that experience of wanting something or not or the wanting of wanting or not wanting and then then raga is a is a desiring things you like you know like gamma dunha seeing something and and wanting it. So, in Thai, raka often means uh, lust, sexual desire. Um, then, then the dosa isn't is is a is means a, a, is a aversion, anger, and hatred. So that when we see something we don't like, then we want to get rid of it. So that so that that points to the to 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 different uh, kinds of you know of experiences, but dunha itself is uh, 
is the generic term for desire. Dunha and dukkha, it's in, like to, are, you can use interchangeably. There is dunha, dunha has causes, and, and dun, there's a cessation of dunha, and there's a way, and there is the way uh, of living where there's no, there's no dunha. You can use it like that, or dukkha, suffering, or desire. But desire, again, is something to know, to examine. Because it's so much a part of our experience that just to, you know, just to think, we, you know, if people say, Buddhists believe you shouldn't have any desires, you shouldn't desire anything. I mean, that's impossible, isn't it? None of us can be Buddhists then. Because this is a desire realm. You know, the... This body is, is desire body, desires things. And so, you know, when, like when you're eating food, if your body's hungry, it needs food, doesn't it? So, so you're looking at food, say, you, you, and you're hungry, you're, you, you're, hu- you're not trying. It's not just greed for, you know, just distract eating through dis- to distract your mind, but you're really, you're feeling hungry, the body needs food, you're looking at the food and you feel this desire for the food. And then what do you do? You say, oh, I'm full of desire. Greed. Because this food's looking very attractive and you want to go and put it into your mouth. And then you take it in a personal way. You think, I'm a greedy person. I can never be enlightened because I'm so greedy. And Buddhists shouldn't have any desires. We shouldn't have any desire for food. Buddhist monks. So I've seen, you know, some Western monks uh, feel so guilty about any form of greed. They think it's all bad that they'll try to, you know, they become anorexics or whatever, <laughs> refuse to eat. So. But that there's no wisdom there. Is it? It's, it, it, why do we make everything so personal? The body needs food, and it, and so that there's this. You know, the food is there, and and you, and you're feeding the body. Is it? Why do you have to make it into I'm greedy? Because you don't know how to. You, you you know, you've not contemplated the nature of desire, and and how it works. You're you're merely taking a stand that desire and greed is somehow bad, and you shouldn't have it. But when you're contemplating the way it is. This body is a desire body, so it's, it's, that's its nature. But that which is aware, you know, that mindfulness, sati sampachanya, aware of greed. Greed is an object, and desire is an object. So you can, you can. That's not what you are. It's a something that you're experiencing, but not, but no longer seen in terms of me and mine. So you begin to to get the right relationship to to the needs of your body to the to the world you're living in which doesn't like a, like the buddha still ate food after enlightenment
and and uh, like uh, sexual monks and nuns, we're celibate, but we're still allowed to eat food. Why? Why didn't? Why can't you know? Because you can live without sex, but you can't live without food. <laughs> You know, we aren't going to die because we don't have sex. But we will if we don't have food. <laughs> no, that, that, that food is, you know, like when, a, when we ordain, then we're given an alms bowl and say, this is the, this is, the, you know, you're now, you know, this food is necessary. So you're given an alms bowl for, uh, to get the food. <coughs> uh, sexual desire is in in the western world is is made into a very personal thing you know it's all fraught with me and mine where it's a natural kind of instinctual desire you know it's it's nature and and yet yet we make it into uh you know into a, we we you know either we're very guilty about it we feel it we feel it's dirty, or you know, if you're a puritanical type type of person, you feel it's uh, you know somehow it's bad or dirty, or or you exalt it, and make it into you know the ultimate human happiness, the best that life has to offer, or you make it into uh, uh, you know it's, that's the only thing worth living for is sex, or you can see it only in terms of. Uh, uh, you know, as a something that uh, you've got to resist and control and suppress, or you just follow, just follow. You know, whatever, whenever you feel that desire, you just follow it. And, and these are different different attitudes we have about. You know, we have various uh, when we feel. We have, uh, if we don't have any sexual desire, we, we get worried. And if we have it, we get worried. <laughs> and if we have too much of it, or... And there's all kinds of books, and it's always an interesting subject. You can always, if you have the word sex, you can always, people always, that's a very, a word that grabs your attention, doesn't it? Sex. <laughs> Because it's interesting and exciting. Anything sexual, you know, is 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 interests us and excites us. So, so that's just the way it is. Because of the because it is a strong, and and very powerful uh, energy that we have through the body. That it you know it's uh, it's very natural. There's nothing wrong with it or or. Um, you know, it's not a matter of of uh, thinking that that we shouldn't that you shouldn't have it, but it's to understand it because so so that this this isn't we're not we because this this energy you say if misused leads to all kinds of difficulties. We can see like if because of of promiscuity and and just uh, a seeking. Using sex as just a, a kind of high, getting, you know, get, get pleasure out of it. You can become obsessed with it, or, 
or fixated on it and and uh, and so forth it one because it is uh, it's a, it can be a very addictive to just have that pleasure that that of through sex, some kind of sexual release so in in meditation we we're, we're, we're noting the this this desire not judging it and the more we understand it, then we like like celibate life is a, is a good reflection for it because we have no way of following it in, in any intentional way. So, you know, because all forms of sexual activity uh, with anybody or just uh, through our own efforts, uh, a masturbation, things like that, are totally forbidden. So you you. You, uh, you're, lo- you're having to deal with this energy in a way that is, is uh, you know, tra- understanding it rather than just trying to deny it or reject it or control it through, through uh, repression. So then, it, you know, you begin to develop an awareness around the, the forces, the, the powerful energies of the body because the body is not self. And sexual desire is something, is a, is an object you can look at. It's not not something you are, not really yours. So you have a, you begin to see it in a different way than when you're identifying. When I'm, I have a, t- I have a strong sex drive, or I'm, you know, the way we we can make it into a, into a highly personal uh, problem. Or attribute, so that this is, and so saying, celibacy is, is the value of it. Say in monastic life, is that is that it mirrors this 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 strong drive of the body, and the attraction that you feel, and the the the, the forces of nature, like the the just the natural attractions between male and female. They just you know they're that way. They're not. It's not even personal in the sense of of me and you, but it's it's a natural uh, kind of the body is attracted in that way. Bodies are attracted to each other. So that's why we have these rules, you know, about not touching women, and that because not because of of uh, there's anything wrong with women, but because touching women tend to stimulate that desire in men, in the body, that you can feel your body in, in, in proximity to a woman's body sometimes, it gets very, you know, even if you no intention or no thoughts in your mind, it, the body knows. It's got its own kind of communication. <laughs> and then you may be, you know, you, that's what you don't want at all. You're trying to be a pure celibate monk, and the body is uh, has its own, uh, you know, that's its natural uh, inclination. So I mean, it's 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 uh, so like uh, hugging and kissing and and uh, touching and patting and all these would tend to uh, get us into a lot of trouble if if we're trying to be celibate. And uh, so that the but the celibacy itself is not not to be repressive or 
in terms of, of uh, denial or rejection of it, but to understand it, to be able to to integrate that energy. Because you're, it's like you're raising up the energy. Because uh, sexual energy tends to be in the in the genital area. So I mean, it, if if we don't, you know, if that's all we ever, if we just use some form of sexual release, then we become obsessed just on that level alone. So that the the aim of celibacy is to bring the, or restraint of some sort, you know, some, for lay people to, to not just use sex as, as, a, as it becomes a habit or, or, or promiscuous uh, or just using it for personal pleasure and, and just playing with it and misusing it because then, then your, your spiritual life can't develop at all because you, you need that energy to bring it up into the heart. You need to integrate that energy into the body. So like celibate life tends to, if the problem is the energies tend to integrate into the whole body. You feel a sense of fullness of your body. It's like it's being, it's filled with this energy as a, as a complete kind of integrated thing rather than then, um, you know, seeing celibacy as merely a, a kind of desperate attempt to deny and get rid of the energy. Right. I mean, it, 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 you have to, whatever, what you choose, you, you have to use that. Like if you're celibate, and then you have, and then you, you have sexual relationships, it doesn't, that's, that's not, that doesn't work. But if you, but marriage, or say, then, then the relationship has, you know, should be on a basis of dhamma, rather than on just exploiting each other for pleasure. And misuse of I mean, it's how you relate to it. Because a sexual sexuality itself is no problem. It's how we, you know, celibacy is probably. You know, is a is is one way of dealing with it, and I think as people, you know, you you hear about people de- couples developing spiritually, they they tend to be increasingly more celibate as life goes on. <laughs> I mean, because they're they're you know they that 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 experience of life no longer is something that is very attractive to you. And uh, where, you know, if, if, if you're 
contemplating Dhamma. <laughs> well, it is a real, uh, you know, I admire, like somebody like Ajahn Chah was, was uh, never had uh, sexual experience. I think he ordained when he was about 12 or something. And, uh, and yet he was wise. But I mean, but he had to. But he, but and, and he, and he understood it, because he he had the ability to understand things through his own experience, without having to go through experiences. You know, he could he could extrapolate just from the nature of desire. What from the desires maybe that you have, you know, or other desires, and that to be able to to infer from that what the rest are like. But that that's quite, uh, uh, like, that's rare. Most of us have to find out and then after a while we begin to, you know, we, we see the, the pointlessness of it. <laughs> and, uh, or the you know the result oftentimes if, if misuse of sexuality it leads to a, a kind of self-loathing or or um, you know you don't like yourself very much if you be if if that's your main interest in life something in you you know is 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 feels unworthy so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Think about it. <laughs> 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 it be the the body or the. Right, right, right. The, the body has the is the there's the the natural uh, attractions, but the it's not wanting anything. Yeah. There's no wanting involved. It is I would suggest that you know that uh, it's something to you know be mindful of.
because I can't speak from experience. <laughs> Because my sex life was really much desire oriented. <laughs> 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 but I said it can be quite a spiritual experience too, you know, enhancing in the spirit rather than just gratifying in sexual terms. Well, I'm sure it can, you know, just in t- terms of of how you, you know, what you're, you know, if you're thinking of, I mean, the, the like promiscuity, the ter- how I use that word is, or misuse of sex is is where you're just seeking gratification for yourself. You're exploiting somebody else for your for your own thrills or needs. And that's that's unwholesome to do. Or just using your body, you know, like saying masturbation, things like that, just for to get uh, excited, exciting experiences. But um, you know, but the sexual act is also a, a religious symbol. You know, it can be a spiritual symbol. As a you know, as a union for union and wholeness. So that's why you you can use the uh, that that is as symbolic for for a uh, you know as a religious symbol for spiritual union. And I noticed, like in in India. Uh, going to the Kali temple in in Calcutta, I remember. Uh, there they have all these uh, Shiva lingams, these palaces of Shiva, and uh, and and they're they a whole kind of field of them, and and uh, Hindu women come and put garlands on them and oil and things like this, and you could tell it's uh, it's. For them, it's a spirit. It's a devotional thing, and it's not, you know, it's a, it's filled with a religious attitude. And yet, I noticed how my mind is conditioned to see it in pornographic terms. You know, almost like, you know, the the Western way of conditioning sees that the the phallus only in terms of a, of kind of pornographic way and uh, and so you know one could kind of snicker at these women putting garlands on these phalluses is it fertility yeah but also it's a it's a uh, you know as far as the shiva lingam goes it's a and and that that whole that that mother kali cults it's uh, it's it's more than fertility you know, it's a, it's a respect for for the for nature, and and of course, Kali is a very bewildering symbol to the Western mind, because she's she's the most horrendous-looking female you ever see. <laughs> you know, really terrifying, uh, and uh, eats her. You know, eating her. You know, but Kali also. 
is, uh, means time, you know. So that, you know, time is that way. It, it gives birth and then it consumes its own children, mother time. So, so these are just human, I mean, ways of using symbolism to, to try to contemplate or to, to bring into consciousness a way of looking at life that is, is um, you know, to, for the spiritual, because that spiritual aspiration is there and, and, and these things are affecting, you know, are affecting our conscious experience, the, the body, its functions, its, its, uh, its energies, its habits, mental habits, and so forth. Then, see, uh, also, if you have time, could you say something about why it is that some of the most enlightened people this century have been so strongly against the practice of Buddhism? <laughs> I am thinking <laughs> particularly of people like uh, J. Krishnamurti and Sri Aurobindo. They didn't sign their name on this. <laughs> but uh, whether, you know, like Krishnamurti, he was he was a funny one because he you know, he uh, he kind of gave mixed messages all the time, you know. So, uh, I mean, I think what he generally meant was the, uh, you know, the, the he saw religion only as a, as a kind of conforming to to beliefs and institutions. And uh, so he, you know, I mean, I remember once going to to a talk in the, in Brockwood Park years ago when he was alive and and he was making fun of monks you know everybody's looking at us and saying they were all you know attached and stupid and they didn't know what they were doing and he saw us sitting there <laughs> and all these people started in the cage. and uh, but when and because I mean, he he seemed to have this idea that that it, <coughs> that that people <coughs> that you were attached to views about God or or that your life was one where you you were just uh, hoping that that shaving your head wearing a orange robe and and following rules and that would enlighten you and, and of course he knew that that you know that that wasn't the way it works and then his own experience of life was was a kind of rebellion against organized religion from the, his experience with the Theosophical Society and, and all the kind of silliness that goes on in, in, religi- in, in, uh, in religious uh, circles. So there is, you know, you can certainly, uh, you know, religion, any, any religious tradition uh, is, uh, 
you know, you can use it for the wrong things. You know, you can, if you attach to ideas about Buddhism, then you become a Buddhist, but you may never get enlightened. Uh, or any other religion, if you just, you know, if you just conform to it and go along with it, and uh, then you you may, you know, it may be good in a way. You you gives you a, you know, you start being maybe a better person or a happier person, but but because you're you say you have a love of something good or something uh, that you believe in, but wouldn't necessarily enlighten you till you you use it in the right way, which is is not to not through clinging or belief, but through uh, understanding how to how do how can you use convention for mindfulness? In other words, in Buddhist in Buddhist terms, you know we can. How do we lose our monastic life so that it so that it we're we're it's helping us to be mindful rather than just institutionalized into monastic rules and and tradition so this is the this is the challenge we have you know how to use this the robes the ceremonies the imagery the tradition that we have say from thailand how to use it for mindfulness rather than for conditioning So, in in terms of like, in, in say we, uh, if we if we become Buddhists, then we tend to adopt Buddhist things, like we wear Buddhist clothes and we use Buddhist words and we we perform Buddhist ceremonies. But it doesn't mean that we ever gain enlightenment. But when you like with meditation, then you're 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 really examining, like the the rules of tradition, then are are things to operate from to to bring into consciousness, so that they're 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 reminders, they're they're helpers on the path to their standards or their criteria for for um, uh, action and speech and for reflection on what's happening. And it's interesting with this, this question about God. Where does God tie into the religious life experience. And because God is is a word that you know, it's a English word. So and and Buddh- and the, then the general attitude is that Buddhists uh, we don't have any God. And many of us were attracted to Buddhism because there isn't any God. <laughs> because our perception of God maybe wasn't a very good one, so we 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 thought we'd just get rid of the whole God and and uh, and Buddhism uh, didn't, doesn't have God in the way that we might might have used the word, and so you know. But then, as you're meditating, you're contemplating Dhamma, you. The word God is a part of one's uh, cultural conditioning, whether you like it or not. You know, I wasn't brought up in a Buddhist family, I was brought up in a Christian family, so God is a word that 
it's a part of a cultural experience and uh, and and so therefore you can just you can look at it in in just maybe the biased ways that you've acquired it you know as a, as a, or rebelled against it or uh, or just see it in the most simplistic terms of you know like like this this uh, Jewish terrorist that killed uh, Mr. Rabin last week and uh, he said God told him to do it and he said, they asked him he said is this a plot of, of, of Jewish fanatics to and he said no no just me and God God told me to do it and so, you know What can you say about that? You know, they got then, then, uh, then the, the I'm sure the Palestinian, the Muslims, and God tells them different things too, to kill Jewish fanatics. <laughs> you know, and then you realize God is a is a is a pretty dodgy word. You know, what do you mean by it? And then people, then you go to interfaith meetings, and they say, Do you believe in God? What do you mean by God? They say, you should, God, you know, God. But I mean, when you get down to it, people have all different views about what God is. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a word, it's only a word. So, and then it's pointing to, what, what do you mean? If, if, a, if a Jewish terrorist says God tell, told him to kill Mr. Rabbi, and then God must be, you know, something in his head. Because I'm sure, you know, most other people that, that God speaks to, he wasn't telling them that. You know, so I mean, you, or in the, in, uh, in the States in the old days, in, before, the, in the six, uh, before the uh, civil rights movement, and they had a lot of segregate, racial segregation in, in the American South. And the white people in the South used to say, God doesn't want the races to mix. He wants apartheid. He wants black people to go to black churches and white people to go to white churches. They say, well, aren't black people just as much God's children? As white? Yes, we're, we're, exa- we're all equal under God. But God wants black people. <laughs> he doesn't want the races to mix. And uh, that's why he made them black and white. And, uh, and then, uh, then, then you say, but he didn't do a very good job because they they are attracted to each other and they can they can intermarry and they can produce children. You know, if, if God w- had anything on the ball, he would have made it so. You know, like there's no attraction there, or or uh, there's no way you could you could reproduce. So. <laughs> I mean, but that is that how that's how the mind, uh, you know, is it? God becomes a a, a, a racist or a Jewish fanatic. I mean, so the but then and then God is a as a man, as a as a father, uh, as a male figure, and so women now question: Why does God have to be male? That's a good question. And, and and these are you know these are things 
that 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 stimulate the mind and, and make us question a lot of things we we take for granted. So the whole subject of God needs to be, you know, in in, in our experience now, say in in practice. You know, if 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 God is In, in say in Christianity, God is a creator God too, so God created everything. In Buddhism, we don't have that. We don't have a creator God. But then, as an experience of God, what is it? And I can only, from my experience, then then I say that that is the the deathless. You know, uh, in terms of the relationship of the condition, the uncondi- is the unconditioned. And then Saint John of the Cross refers to God as the not, not that no thing. And that's interesting, no thing, or nothing, or no thing, which is which. Then people get upset because you're saying it's like you're saying there isn't any God. But that's not what you're saying. You're saying God isn't a thing. Or you could say, God doesn't exist, and then you say, you mean there isn't any God. And, but, but existing is, you know, or saying things exist, you see, so, so then you're, you know, in contemplating this way, God then is, is see, if, it, if it's truly, you know, pointing to uh, a, a spiritual realization that, that is deathless, and ultimate, then I have no problem with, say, God or Dhamma or whatever. You know, these are a matter of just well, words that and, and traditions. But the the experience, mystical experience, I can't see how it, it could be any different. You know, how you might describe it because of the of your if you're if you're Christian and and you, know, you use Christian terms, it's just a way of talking about something uh, and a vocabulary and agreed expression that 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 means something to Christians or Buddhists have their way of it. But the actual, like like you know, it's in mindfulness we're we're getting beyond language itself and and the uh, conditioned perceptions of the mind, the the assumptions and the cultural conditioning of the mind. But I don't know. I mean, as far as the rest of you, this is just from my, my, from my uh, experience. Because now, to, to, to say, Buddhists don't believe in God, or this seems so, like such a, you know, it, it's a misrepresentation. Uh, it's putting Buddhism as just some kind of, you know, Buddhists don't believe in God. We don't have that, and, and Christians believe in God. And and but what do you mean by God? And do you know God? Do you know what that really is? Have you have you really, or or do you think that the crazy voices in your head is God talking to you? You know. <laughs> And and you can interpret it any way you want, you know. But in terms of experience and 
or you're getting beyond the the convention because the mindfulness is even to transcend Buddhism itself. You know, the, it's a considered the raft you get across. It's not. It's only expedient means. It's not and not something to to hold on to. So then, when you when you realize that, then it then there's no you know you can see that religions are really not in conflict with each other in terms of of uh, the of the true religious ex- of what I would consider the true religious experience. But in terms of the conventions, they can be quite different. You know, you know, they don't have to all be the same or use exactly the same symbols or the same techniques. Um, I feel a little uncomfortable about saying that. You know, I have experienced uh, I have experienced God in my practice um, as a universal energy of immense love and compassion. When I came out of a sitting in which I experienced that, um, the only word that I could give to this was, this, this, was, this is God. Right, and that, that's an ex- that, that is, is how you would describe it. But, but in itself, it had no name. Right, right, right. Right. Such an all-encompassing energy that touched everything. Yeah. That to me, that is what God means. So then, in terms of of uh, and this is where you know the the words themselves then are are you know they're they're nothing in themselves they're they're just sounds and words but but they're you know the function of a word is to is to direct your attention to something so if you put God on a low level, like being, a, um, you know, whatever, whatever you perceive it, then you tend to, that's where you tend to put your, you know, you tend to get like that or do those things. So in putting God, the word God into the transcendent or the, or the unconditioned or the, 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 the you know, at the, as the as that which is complete, then, then you know, that would mean to me that then God, is, that would draw your move you toward that rather than toward uh, God telling you to kill the prime minister. <laughs> but if you're if you're a fanatic, then you. Uh, you create God. You know, these are like the 
like what heresy really is, isn't it? Where you you just follow your own deluded state of mind. Then um, I think we've covered it all. And pretty profound stuff. And death, God, sex. <laughs> Desire, Krishnamurti, Sri Aurobindo. Also, recognize it that in uh, terms of of uh, uh, people in you know people who are enlightened not may not necessarily understand other religions or or all you know it doesn't mean that you you know everything about everything so that's why yeah you know it doesn't mean that that uh, that you know about every religion and the authority on everything enlightenment means you know it can be uh, you know, you, you know, enlightened people, even in 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 uh, you know in tribal societies, and that it doesn't they might not know anything about Mozart or or Christ or anything. But I mean, it's because it, so it, it's it's not a matter of or or they or you you get biased views. You know, so pe- you, you, maybe your culture has sees Christianity in a certain way or sees Buddhism in a certain way. So, and when they say, well, Buddhists believe, uh, believe that there isn't any God, and then the enlightened person might say, well, Buddhism is wrong. Because uh, in the terms of, of the logic, you know, what they're, the, the, what they're saying is, you know, they're, they're just going along with the with the, what the person, how he perceives Buddhism, or like I don't know. I one thing I, I, I you know, I mentioned about speaking for other religions because I don't know, like Judaism or Islam or even Christianity. Anything about say Christianity is is uh, you know just I'm not trying to interpret Christianity. But because it has, you know, Christianity has played a part in my life, then it, it definitely has some kind of, uh, you know, cultural significance in, in my experience. I mean, it, there is a, you know, a, an interest in it to, to relate it to my own spiritual experience through Buddhism, through Buddhist practice. But in terms of my own my own experience, I definitely feel, uh, you know, that it's the Buddhist, Buddhist terms, the Buddhist style that I, that I really know. You know, that's why I, I would teach Buddha Dhamma, or, you know, I know, how, it's like playing an instrument, you know, you know, 
if you know how to play the piano, you, you may not be able to play, be any good on the violin. You wouldn't know how to teach that, so you teach piano. There's no, no criticism of violin, is it? <laughs> so it's, uh, it, it's not in any way a, a reflection on that violins are in any way inferior to pianos, but it's merely what you know, what you've, what you've used, how, how you, the instrument that you, that you can play music with. But then a, a good violinist, a good pianist can make beautiful music. Or they can make terrible music. <laughs> you know, a bad violinist, bad pianist can, it can, you know, be pretty revolting. It's nothing to do with pianos or violins, is it? It's who, who the player is. But I find now that, like, with uh, this, even though, you know, convention, I'm Theravadan Buddhist, and, and all that, that is, the, that is the convention. But I have no, but there's no attachment to that convention. I mean, there's, I've, what I feel I've learned is how to use the convention as a, as a skillful means. But when, in regards to other forms of Buddhism, I don't, I can, you know, I've, I've done a lot from Mahayana, from Prajnaparamita, and uh, various Zen things, and from Advaita Vedanta, and so well, I mean, it's not that I'm just, I only know Theravada Buddhism, but but I find none of those things conflict with my own experience within the the the, uh, the limitation and style of Theravada. Time for the fourth posture.